0: This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out, Talking Science, episode number 43, recorded on August 26, 2021. Hello, folks. You are listening to the podcast about all things science. I'm Dr. Ebi Abdallah, and I'm here with doctors, or Dr. Fauner and Dr. Keller. How are you guys doing?
1: Doctors would have been okay, as long as you would have said doctors Fauner and Keller. I mean, well, last time, unless tried there are, that, I, I unless there are different at.
0: doctors. <laughs> last time be. I tried that, didn't he yell at me last time I did that?
1: Unless, uh, unless Dr. Keller's title has changed in the last week. It's possible. Overlord, Master oh, Keller. It is possible.
2: Yeah. Well, he so, keeps adding on titles. I don't know how he does it. Well, they, uh, they're going to have to start going pretty soon, I think. There's too many. They don't fit on my door. Uh, but I uh, I hear that uh, I'm not the most recent one to get a promotion
1: here. Or a new title. Or indeed. a new title, yeah. Is it is it public yet, Foner? Oh, I, I believe so. I mean, it's been on PowerPoints. So, ah. yeah, I think the news is out. So, no Foner
0: is the new assistant director of the PBL pathway in Lecom Erie. Congratulations. Congratulations. Well, thank you.
1: And
0: thank you. Yeah, he does have everything
1: else. I couldn't have done it without my team here. So, thank you to you guys. We're good good mentorship and good friendship.
0: Thing. That's right. Good.
1: So our,
2: okay, uh, our so students August, are back. Oh, so, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, uh, uh, I was just going to say our students, uh, just in case they're listening, a shout out because they're taking their first anatomy practical tomorrow. And mm, yeah. Their yeah, first luck, anatomy folks. exam on Monday, and I'm excited to see how they do. I think they're going to do great. I yeah. So I, I know they can.
0: All right. So we are August 26th. Do we have a birthday?
2: We do have a birthday. It is Albert Bruce Sabin, who, as everybody knows, developed the uh, the Sabin polio vaccine that uh, is being used worldwide currently to try to eradicate polio. Uh, unfortunately, I think they're on hold because of COVID. Uh, Albert was born August 26, 1906, and died March 3, 1993. And he did, he developed the first uh, live oral polio vaccine that's still used today in a lot of countries. Uh, No wonder you have me read this. Born as Abram Saperstein in Bilystok, which is now Poland. Uh, Previously, the Russian Empire in 1906. He immigrated to the U.S. in 1921 and became a U.S. citizen in 1930 and changed his name to Albert Bruce Samentman. He has a bachelor's in science 1928 1928 from New York University, and then went on to get his uh, medical degree in 1931, also from New York University. He trained in internal medicine, pathology, and surgery at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. During World War II, as a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Medical Corps, he helped develop a vaccine against Japanese encephalitis. And he had original work on the polio vaccine. Uh, it was complicated at first because there there were three serotypes. Jonas Salk developed first an inactivated polio vaccine. Uh, I know that because I I worked in the uh, the lab that he discovered did all his work in down at
0: Pitt. I knew you would love the segment.
2: That's why. I that's why today you I, I had to do it in the there. Yeah, uh, in 1955, it was effective, uh, but it wasn't effective in in preventing all the intestinal infections, and so there were still you know patients. So Sabins' live oral oral vaccine was developed using an attenuated strain of the virus, and that was good enough to block it from entering the bloodstream from the intestine, and uh, was used in this country for a long time until there was a an outbreak of herpes B. Uh, which is a a monkey virus from the uh, the way they grew the the vaccine up um, sabin died in 1993 from heart failure at the age of 86 and he has done the world a great service medically speaking
0: absolutely sure. he has yeah his that last part my opinion yeah well and, and it's uh it's it's a solid' a spot on opinion uh well, thank you his vaccine is, is credited with eradicating polio in, in a lot of places where it was rampant. So the for, formal Soviet Union, for example, well, I mean, the US, that, we use the US the vaccine. as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for absolutely. decades. That is correct.
2: Very good birthday.
0: All right, indeed. So Keller, you have a very colorful background, I which got do. some BioBuster coloring too. I like it.
2: That's why I chose it. So we are actually looking at, I believe, uh, mannitol salts auger today. And so uh, I may have shown it before, but this is a new picture. So I really like this because it shows you two different bacteria that are growing on the same auger. We use this to differentiate people that are carrying Staph aureus in their nose, including MRSA strains. So uh, it, it has a lot of salt in it, which usually kills bacteria, but it does not kill Staphylococcus, including Staph epidermidis. And so, on the uh, on this side over here, the pink side, that's what it normally looks like. Uh, and when we culture Staph epi, it just it grows on there, but it doesn't make any color change. Uh, the, there's mannitol in there, and Staph aureus, which is over here in the yellow, it uh, it is fermenting that mannitol and uh, creating uh, acids as part of the uh, the byproducts of the fermentation process, which turn the media yellow because there's an acid indicator in there. So we know that the person on the left has a staph aureus infection or might be carrying that in their nose.
0: So this is what microbiologists call a differential uh, media, right? They would. Because it would differentiate between two organisms. Perfect. Thank you very Perfect. much. It's a beautiful Absolutely,
2: picture. I think so too. It's very well done. One one of the students took that.
0: Oh, fantastic! Mm-hmm. Fauner, do you want to run us through some of the numbers for coronavirus?
1: Sure. Um, as of yesterday, so pretty recent data, August twenty fifth. Um, current worldwide COVID cases are sitting at approximately two hundred fourteen million. Uh, worldwide deaths are at about four point four million. Cases in the U.S. sitting at about 39 million, and then deaths in the U.S. at about 648,000. In terms of the current vaccination effort, those individuals with at least one dose at about 60.5% and fully vaccinated individuals sitting at 51.2% around the world. We have around, what, 5.04 billion doses that have been administered in terms of vaccines, so that's good. Uh, 32.9% of the world's population, they've received at least one dose. And uh, again, a little bit concerning, 1.4% of people in lower income countries have received at least one dose of the vaccine. So definitely some work to do there on that front. So uh, since
0: we last uh, spoke or last had an episode, uh, the FDA has now fully approved Pfizer's and BioNTech's vaccine, uh, full FDA approval, basically based on a very long, at this point, almost Mm -hmm. a year of clinical data and Mm -hmm. uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, patients infected not infected, but vaccinated. Which uh, brings me to uh, some data that has uh, uh, come up recently about the possibilities or the need for booster shots. Uh, Data this week uh, from uh, companies from Pfizer and Moderna uh, submitted to the FDA uh, uh, seeking approval for a third shot. Uh, Their data shows that people who receive a booster shot, the third shot, about five to eight months after their second shot have uh, basically uh, antibody levels uh, that are three times higher than if they don't receive that booster. Uh, Johnson and Johnson, as we all know, is a one dose vaccine and they've done some booster uh, analysis as well and uh their numbers are impressive Uh, the uh volunteers who were given a second shot six months after their first shot had uh antibodies against coronavirus jump nine times higher than just with the first dose so they're also discussing with the fda the possibility of a booster shot uh, which you know some people are necessarily uh, criticizing should we should we get a third booster shot before uh, poorer countries get their first shot but you know that's 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 a that's an argument that is being made uh that you know it, it's a fair it, it fair is a argument. fair argument as mm-hmm. well if our level of immunity with a second shot uh is good enough to prevent the worst outcomes of disease which is severe disease and death then you know should we offer that opportunity to lower income countries before we get our third booster you know uh, just to boost antibody level shots so I, I, the for, answer is yes I, yeah. I agree with you and uh if if the supply is not an issue then we can do both but if the supply of the vaccines is an issue, and clearly there mu- there, there is some issues with supply of the vaccine, then uh, then maybe look, we can't do
2: both. We've, we've got data that says, if you get one shot, you have some protection. If you get two right. shots, that's better. We don't know what three shots is going to do. Yeah, of course you should have a good, you know, robust immune response after a third dose. How long is that going to be there? Does that protect? So we, we, it, we go into science, maybe it will, that's great. But here you still have people that don't have any immunity at all. Yeah, Why not yeah, protect yeah. them first before we go on and say, you know what? We don't know if it's going to be more effective.
0: Yeah. You br- you bring up a good point in that the data presented by these companies that the third shot booster boosts up antibody levels. What does that correlate to with protection from disease? We don't, we know. don't know yet. And. Uh, there's a strong argument to give poorer countries first doses even before well, we get our third. But I mean, yeah.
2: herd immunity is not localized to the US. I mean, it, yeah, it, of course not. Yeah, right. Course. I mean, herd immunity to any disease anymore pretty much is, is worldwide, especially a respiratory yeah. Yeah. pandemic like this. So, yeah. you know, we, we're, we're, we're letting those people contribute to more cases, more spread, where you know, if we protected them, perhaps we could at least limit the infections every year of COVID-19. And, and
0: reduce deaths, for sure. Yeah,
2: definitely. Um,
0: one thing that's also been in the news and people have wondered, okay, if I have had COVID in the past, why should I get the vaccine? I have natural immunity. Finally, there's a study that came out in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly reports uh, published on August 6th. And it showed that uh, people who had recovered from coronavirus infection but were not vaccinated were around twice as likely to get infected again as their vaccinated counterparts. So both of these groups had had coronavirus previously, have natural immunity. Some of them went and got the vaccine, got a vaccinated sort of full dose of vaccination schedule. And those that did not get the vaccine were twice as likely to get infected again. Uh, more data on this is needed. I think one study is not enough, but you know. What was the
1: double in this study? How many people did? How many residents did they uh, sample?
0: If I remember correctly, and I can double check, but um, a few hundred. I think I'm 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 not sure actually. Right, so yeah. that's why that's why I'm saying that we we
2: need we need more we need more on this. I I agree. Uh, you know, one study is going to do it. And I mean, you don't need to have that many people to have twice as much. I mean, how, right. how many people actually got reinfected of these people? I mean, if you have two people in one group and one person another group, yeah. And
0: I I'm really sure there's a lot of studies happening on that at the moment. So I think it's just a matter of of, of
2: weeks to months published. before there's way more data on that. Here's what will blow your mind: What if they had had a third dose?
0: Yeah, yeah, there is that, there is that. (laughs) All right, that brings me to this episode's scientific study, and we've got an exciting one. So, um, browsing through the New England Journal of Medicine, we came across an article titled CRISPR-Cas9 in vivo gene editing for transthyretin amyloidosis. Uh, it's got a very long list of authors. I will not go through all of them. First author is Julian Gilmore, and um, yeah, there's Ed no Al.
2: last <laughs> they, they have, they, <laughs> There's five lines of authors, and they still didn't get them all in there. <laughs> no, uh,
0: yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. So, what 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 is this disease? So, transthyretin amyloidosis, also known as ATTR amyloidosis, is a progressive and fatal disease that is characterized by the accumulation of amyloid fibrils in tissues. So this is effectively a misfolded protein mm-hmm. disease. And these transthyritin proteins get misfolded and they start accumulating in tissue. Two types of these disease uh, pretty much exist. One leads to cardiomyopathy and heart failure and eventually death. And one can appear as polyneuropathy or cardiomyopathy or both that is the hereditary type of amyloidosis and uh basically the prognosis is not that great for this so if you have uh, uh if you have amyloidosis and it involves the heart uh from diagnosis to death you're looking at about two to six years If you have the polyneuropathy one without the heart involvement, so basically just nerve involvement without heart involvement, you're looking at four to 17 years to death. Wow. Right now, the only treatment is to reduce the uh, formation of these misfolded amyloid fibrils, right? So at best, you're looking at symptom relief, maybe some functional improvement. Enter CRISPR-Cas. CRISPR-Cas is a gene editing slash silencing technology that was discovered by mistake, actually. And the people who discovered it uh, got, got a Nobel Prize for yeah. it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh I, I, I we have an episode on that actually, don't we, Fauna, Right from yeah, from, uh, a few from years our ago. teal college days. Yeah. So yeah. for our listeners, if you want a uh, a, a a primer on uh, a, just a summary on CRISPR-Cas gene editing, we've we've got an episode on that. Should have looked up the number actually.
1: Well, it's back in either eighteen or nineteen. I yeah. forget it's exactly there. when. It's there.
0: Well, yeah, one of us can look it up as I keep going with this study. Uh, so. Um, Basically, what happens with uh, with this uh, technology is that you introduce uh, uh, this CRISPR-Cas set of uh, uh, you know gene editing mechanism that will then go ahead and uh, silence a gene or pretty much cut it out, uh, depending on w- which one you choose. Right. So, what they did in this study, to, uh so they introduced CRISPR-Cas a delivery system that went to the liver. And the reason it went to the liver is because uh, 99% of this protein is produced in the liver. This TTR protein is produced in the liver. So it makes sense to target the liver. And they tried these studies uh, first in in, uh, uh, mice and then non-human primate models before they went on to human subjects. What's really interesting about this, we've seen CRISPR-Cas studies left and right, but this is done in humans, Mm -hmm. right? Mm So they looked at uh, uh, basically uh, people between the ages of, to to include in the study, people between the ages of 18 and 80, they had to have had a diagnosis of polyneuropathy due to amyloidosis, and they were not on any treatments. And they pretty much uh, took these uh, patients and they gave them this CRISPR-Cas that shut down the production of this protein. So they verified that the protein was being shut down. So they they saw more than ninety percent reduction in the uh, production of this protein. So the protein was not being produced in these patients, and um, uh, so they so and they evaluated that by looking at serum levels of this protein. And what they saw that at day 28, so roughly about, what, four weeks or so after Mm -hmm. treatment, they saw reductions. Uh, They did multiple doses, right? And in the higher dose, they saw almost 90% reduction in the level of of this protein. They're still monitoring these individuals to see whether uh, that will also lead to, uh, reversal of disease or no disease progression. At this point, this study, it is a, a human study in vivo gene editing mm-hmm. to reduce the level of this protein that causes amyloidosis, right? So they, they the study while groundbreaking, uh, you know, paradigm shifting, whatever you want to call it, does not yet know whether the disease is being reversed or not. But you mm-hmm. you would think with with getting rid of the protein that causes it, that that you would see
2: some uh, reversal of disease. You might think that, right? Yeah. We need to see it, but yeah. regardless of whether or not that happens, they've they've shown evidence that it's effective. Right. Absolutely. And so yeah, yeah. So this 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 is a big deal, right a here. This is a big deal. deal. You're you're editing humans. We we're, we're seriously
1: editing humans. Yeah, it's and like uh, science fiction marvel yeah. captain america type stuff that again used to be science fiction and now it's, it's just current reality you can actually do this
0: but you know it's in in this case it's done obviously for a good cause and oh, if absolutely regu- if, no, if no no well, no this yeah, is a big if, deal oh absolutely and if well regulated i think has room to improve a lot of a lot of human suffering right there's there's another study in the works right now looking at uh crisper and sickle cell anemia sure which affects hundreds of thousands of african-americans in the us and
2: millions of africans in africa right yeah but keep 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 in mind why that's around be careful sometimes Oh, malaria i know i know yeah, yeah i know pressure so from malaria etc but- yeah it's it's uh, you know but our, our listeners don't all know that the sickle cell gene, uh, when people have two copies of it, it's lethal without any intervention. And and historically, it would kill little kids, but it was still around in the population because if you only have one copy of the gene and one copy of the normal gene, you were really protected from getting malaria, which would also kill little kids. So it's 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 an amazing story about how you know our genetics are shaped by infectious diseases. And so if you remove oh, it completely, what's that going to do? Yeah. Maybe nothing. But you well, know we, that might be the the only protection some people get. I knew I knew uh, I had some friends uh, from Africa that that had from Kenya that had uh, sickle cell trait. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in in the
0: U.S., I mean, we don't have malaria, right? So sure, you have hundreds sure. of thousands of African Americans in the U.S. Of course, no benefit whatsoever, right? Yeah, fair point. But yeah, yeah, so uh, but yeah, no. So uh, this this is huge, right? I, I, this you is know, huge. I, we, we don't we want to uh, put an under underline that word huge, right? Huge. Um,
2: Editing people, it's just it's it's amazing.
0: Yeah. So one one of the concerns with it is that what if you have any off-target effects of your CRISPR Cas? What does if your CRISPR Cas is injected into a human and it doesn't necessarily just alone edit the gene that you sent sure. it after, and edited or deleted some other gene? In this particular study, uh, the off-target effects were only in non-coding regions, and they had I think six or seven off-target effects, all in non-coding regions. So
2: I wouldn't take it. I'm just telling you right now, but I, I think it's amazing <laughs> yeah. what they're doing.
0: Yeah, but you know, if you have amyloid doses and you have no other, uh, you, um,
2: right? Every, everything's relative. Exactly. I, you know, if, yeah. if you if you're an advanced disease or right you know, or a disease period, and you know that you're going to die, the, what do you say? Two to four years?
0: Then yeah, maybe you accept a certain level of risk. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So, Jen, if uh, more background on CRISPR-Cas and the ethics surrounding it. We actually talked to uh, Dr. Matt Morgan uh, from Teal,
0: yeah, and yeah.
1: talked about gene therapy back on December eleventh, two thousand eighteen. So almost three years ago. And what episode number was that? Did you, did number eight. eight. Episode yeah, eight. It had to be wow.
2: early because I I was in like in the teens. Yeah, eight. Yeah, we
0: are at forty three. Well, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. Wow.
2: <laughs> okay, and, and and you've left the area. I mean, we're still going strong. So that's right.
1: That's right. Exactly.
2: All right, ah. switching gears
0: to Cool Science Happening. So this F is honor. just- You, yeah. uh, you just about.
2: did the cool science already. I'm, t- I'm, t- I'm saying that, crispr <laughs> you know, That was all,
0: the study of the episode. Now we have a, yeah. another segment we're calling Cool Science Happening.
1: And uh, this is something that actually came about in the last few weeks. And I think even on like uh, the late show or what is that tonight show, whatever it is with Colbert. He made a joke about this, which got me thinking, dug into you know the literature just a little bit. But um, the journal Science recently came out with a publication where they measured uh, the total amount of energy that people expend as they go about just daily tasks in their everyday lives. And they found results that maybe are contradictory to the idea that metabolism slows down in middle to later years. And essentially what the study showed was that total energy expenditure, after adjusting for different confounding factors such as body size, um, you typically see it steadily declining where it peaks in infancy. Um, until around uh, 20 years of age, give or take, depending on different factors. But then once it declines to the stable level around 20 years or so, it remains stable until about 60. And then after 60-ish years of age going forward, that's whenever energy use and energy expenditure begins to decline uh, once again. And so this kind of turns around the idea that
0: you know, after your twenties, your metabolism slows down, right? This is why this is huge.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, this is something that maybe some people traditionally will fall back on as, Oh, I I mean, I used, I say this still probably. And I know my cousin, my one cousin says this, Oh, I I can't eat the way I used to. My metabolism has hit a wall. Uh, You know, that fast food in college can't do that now or, you know, feel like crap later or pack on some pounds later, you know, in a few weeks. Um, they actually came up with a really cool result and observation that for their size, for a pretty minute size, one-year-olds uh, burn calories 50% faster than adults. And once you control for the fact that these one-year-old, you know, one-year-olds are growing, um, their actual energy expenditure is drastically high than what you would expect given their body size and their, uh, their composition. So uh, it's kind of a fascinating discovery. And um, again, that as well as the result that there isn't really a lot of significant change in your metabolism or energy expenditure ranging from early adulthood, adulthood going into, um, middle age. So, so is this whole
0: like myth of like, oh, my metabolism is slowing down so on so forth, is it sort of, uh, because what do we get less active as we age?
1: I mean, wear and tear on the body, uh, as you get older, I mean, think about from when you were in your like early twenties or mid twenties to. Oh, I definitely not, had more.
0: I'm not going to date you guys w- w- right now. W- but willingness to do more things and was more active for sure. Well, think yeah. about
1: more time. Think about the wear and tear on the body. I mean, looking back, I, I probably could have done a lot more in my early 20s in terms <laughs> of like exercise and getting around and running those marathons and stuff. And now it's, I mean, you know, you got to take a sabbatical if you want to do a marathon or have a little bit of extra time. Um. Yeah, I think it's just, and of course, different individuals will exhibit different metabolic patterns and, you know, metabolism is linked to a lot of different things, um, uh, different disorders, uh, genetic predispositions. But after accounting for these differences, it was seen that, you know, it stays, metabolism and metabolic rate stays relatively consistent between the ages of about 20 and 60. All right. For those of you listeners who want to uh, check out the
0: data and the graphs, it's uh, available in uh, Science, uh, Daily Energy Expenditure through the Human Life Course. Yep. And now you can hear Foner's dogs.
1: Yeah. Kayla is out of the house right now. So looks like we made it, what, about half an hour in before any disruptions. There's probably somebody at the door and... That's probably Kayla at the door. (laughs) It could be. If they don't, if they don't quiet down in the next five or 10 minutes, then hopefully I'm not getting robbed. Well, uh, let's uh,
0: move on to uh, Fauner's fun physio fact.
1: So this is a little bit dated now because I guess the Olympics have been over for a few weeks now. The uh, Paralympics are still going on. That's true. I I actually forgot about that. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, But In terms of kind of the Olympics and the controversy, I won't say controversy, but the big news on the U.S. side from the Olympics was the fact that Simone Biles ended up withdrawing from some team as well as individual competitions, right? And again, two sides to that story. Some people supported it. Some people didn't. I mean, a a lot of explanations for why she withdrew. And um there's this really cool, it's almost like a psychological phenomenon that is known in the gymnastics world as the twisties. So the twisties, twisties. yeah, the twisties, where basically there's a disconnect. It's almost like, imagine getting into your own head where you think about what you are doing and what you have been trained to do. You start almost overthinking it and getting into your heads, your own head, so much that you are disrupting the trained kind of link between muscle action and input from the nervous system, from the central nervous system. And you get muscle memory failing. Uh, The body isn't responding as quickly in that set pattern as it should. And And leads, I mean, twisties, this term twisties has been psychologically documented in gymnastics, resulting in concussions, broken bones. I mean, I imagine you guys saw these gymnasts, you know, on the poles and doing, you know, the bars and doing their techniques and, uh, you know, programs. I mean, I'll never be able to do that in my life. And some of that stuff you mess up, you're walking away, probably limping.
2: If you're walking away. Yeah, if I've, I've seen.
0: I've seen. I saw a couple of videos of uh, some a gymnastics who had the twisties, sort of like doing a couple exercises just to show what it looks like, and they they can't make a single landing to to yeah, save wow. their
1: life. And and again, think about how that becomes trained, right? The, the reason why you do, and this isn't just gymnastics, right? Uh, Keller, correct me if I'm wrong, but the former goalie for the Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, Mark Andre Fleury. I think maybe back in the mid 2010s, I think he had to see in the off season, a sports psychologist, sports psychologist. Yeah. yeah. Because he was getting in his own head. He was letting, it's a real thing. Yeah. And so in some other sports, it's called the Yips. Why? I've also, so I think I've also heard this in the context of surgery. And the only reason I remember Mm. this, it was a, Again, this could be fictional because it was a fictional show, but uh, the <laughs> show on FX called Nip Tuck back in the 2000s, the oh, one really. surgeon was like losing his focus or his ability to do like microsurgery. And no. I think they called it the yips. That, Interesting.
2: It, it, I mean, it, it's it's psychology. It, yep. it, when you have these high stakes, you know, uh, sports, you know, you're expected to play at high levels and not screw up at all. You know, surgery, you can't screw up at all. These high stakes uh, occupations, of course, you're going to have a little bit of you getting in your own head. And as soon as you start doing that, it's like baseball Mm -hmm. slumps. You you get in your own head. Same same
1: idea. Well, and think about what is whenever you go through these, what, thousands of hours of training, regardless Mm -hmm. of what sport you're in, you're rewiring that connection or that responsivity between your brain and muscle action. And that depends on a lot of sensory input. So think about the different ways that we're receiving sensory input on a daily basis, hundreds of times a day. Visual information, uh, proprioceptors throughout the body, uh, proprioceptive nerve cells, Mm -hmm. everything in terms of a sensory cell is relaying that information about body position back to the brain, back to your vestibular system, which controls balance, allows you to resist vertigo, equilibrium things like that. And your brain is going to integrate, integrate all of this information and kind of compare them to the, like the internal system of the body. And that's how you kind of retrain to when you get a specific sensory stimulus, you hear that hockey stick hit the puck, Mm -hmm. you're looking and your arm, you're going up to block that puck without Mm -hmm. you even realizing it. It's second nature. And Basically in the twisties, what can happen is some type of disruption. Again, you're overthinking your movements. Um, Again, you have an area of the brain called the cerebellum. That's very important in generating these internal systems of movement. And the cerebellum is going to be key in relaying what should happen in the body to what is actually happening based on sensory information that you are perceiving. Now, what's the one thing that all athletes are exposed to? It's going to be stress, right? not only stress of competition, but I think about the pressure that all of these individuals undergo. Maybe you can argue too much pressure. When these athletes are placed on a pedestal, I mean, you can make an argument in the last 10, 15, 20 years, social media, the advent of social media, all of this pressure from sponsors, fans, family, etc. If they don't know how to handle that or it gets too intense, well, guess what? That stress, if it becomes chronic, can start disrupting those learned motor sequences. Before you know it, you're starting to basically that wired training program becomes disrupted and you start messing up.
0: And then you try to overcompensate yep. by when you do the activity and then it ends up being uh, less accurate and more
1: error prone. And it can get dangerous, right? With I guess some twisties. Oh, with gymnastics, that are, of course, yeah, you can end up, yeah, you know, breaking yeah. your back or whatever. But but with some twisties, I mean, you you saw any of those competitions? I would think these people are doing perfect programs, and they're getting points deducted for not being that graceful, or mm-hmm. the movements aren't as accurate. If you get a really bad case, such as what Simone um, went through, according to her own words. She might have gone out there, attempted to move, fallen on her back and hurt herself. So it's uh, it's amazing how that stuff works, the influence of the brain and psychology on actual muscle movement.
0: Amazing indeed. And thank you very much for that. Of course. Now we get to the game segment.
2: Fascinating. Fascinating indeed. Take it away. So, uh a quick recap from last episode: we uh, we were talking about the 1950s and 60s, where members of the South Foray tribe in Papua New Guinea were succumbing to a neurological disease that caused paralysis, coma, and death. And they linked it to funerary cannibalism. So, researchers eventually determined that this was a disease similar to scrapie, and they said stop eating people and. And, and Kuru was gone. Uh, more recently, a chronic wasting disease of elk and deer has been spreading across the United States. Uh, we had some here in Pennsylvania recently. Uh, symptoms include, uh, well, wasting, clearly, uh, difficulty walking, uh, behavioral changes in a deer. Uh, and uh, last episode's question was, uh, how, how does this disease actually work to affect the nervous system? And Tina writes in high bio buster docs. I'm ready to answer the riddle. Uh, I think it was a prion disease. That is correct. According to CDC, chronic wasting disease belongs to a small family of diseases called prion diseases uh, or transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. Uh, these are abnormal proteins that that, that fold differently and, and, and cause uh, so similar to what we're talking about in our cool science stuff today, right, uh, they cause uh, the, the normal proteins in our body to refold, and they become an aggregate that's eventually phagocytosed, uh, internalized by our neuronal cells, and it causes uh, oh, a sponge-like appearance. Basically, the cells are there, they just don't work. Uh, so she says, thank you for a great podcast, Tina. Tina, you're right. Tina, very good. So awesome. Please email the biobusters.gmail.com uh, to collect your gift. Just so you know, there has not been any uh, chronic waste disease yet identified in people.
0: So- Which is good news.
2: Good to know. Good
0: because we've got, I mean, we've got a good number of hunters in this country that hunt deer, elk. I hunt deer. Yeah. Yeah. My family hunts deer. Yeah.
2: So my family hunts bear.
0: I know people who hunt as
2: well. And I think it's a good thing that it has not transmitted to humans. Used to be a lot more popular, but that's still a lot of people. All right. How about this week's riddle? We have a 35 year old female who developed a rash over her legs and started having trouble breathing. Uh, As well as severe abdominal pain for several days that led up to these symptoms, Uh, she was hypertensive, meaning she had high blood pressure. So she was admitted to the hospital. She developed acute respiratory distress syndrome and died several hours later. After her death, tests showed that she had low red blood cells; she she was anemic, and she had reduced platelets in her blood, which uh, which led to it, it was noted that there were small blood clots, which is probably where the platelets went, uh, scattered throughout her organs. And this is what led to multiple organ failure. Her condition was known to be caused by autoantibodies. And and I'm supposed to make this easier now. So autoantibodies to lipids. Thank you. So this week's question, what, what disease does she have? It says very specific disease. And what do these auto antibodies cause in the body? So,
1: and then Fantastic. Rick, of course,
2: writes it. I just want to give Rick some credit. Thank you, Rick, for writing in as well. So Beautiful.
0: good luck, everybody. Yeah, if you think you know the answer to this riddle, please email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. Make sure to check out our Instagram page, subscribe, and share our podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music, and you can now find our videos on Daily Motion and YouTube. Yeah. We have links to all of these pages in the show notes. Make sure you to follow and share. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.
1: Miles.